Welcome back to My Gothic Dissertation. Up until now, we've journeyed through the grad school gothic from the perspective of the innocent, downtrodden protagonists. We've seen our heroes trapped in invalidating cycles of approval-seeking and self-doubt, stuck behind liftmasters who stifled their curiosity and threatened to extinguish their imaginations, and rendered voiceless by the fear of facing disapproval and rejection. Today, we're going to flip the script. No longer bemoaning the abuses of terrifying teachers, we're taking a look at the way students can be monstrous. Professor Faith, in my opinion, is one of the worst professors I've had since being in Iowa. If you've ever seen ABC's late night show, Jimmy Kimmel Live, you're probably familiar with the segment, Celebrities Read Mean Tweets. It's a recurring bit where guests on the show take a moment to read aloud some of the nasty things people have said about them on Twitter. Can tweets even be mean? I, oh. Your face is so stupid. I hate you, John Krasinski. This is, of course, John Krasinski, who then peers off into the distance, bottom lip protruding, before gazing straight into the camera as if to say, what did I do to deserve this? Of course, it's a staged reaction, and one meant to underscore the absurdity of the baseless vitriol we've come to expect from internet trolls. But still, it reminds me a little of what it feels like to be a college teacher, doing what, for many, is one of the most dreaded parts of their job. Reading student evaluations at the end of the semester. Um, you should choose a single teaching style to stick to. Of course, not all evaluations are mean, but the ones that are can really sting. I feel that if Carl has the ability to grade my work, he should also have the ability to teach me how to do my work better. Carl failed to teach me anything slightly helpful, so not only was this class a waste of money, but a waste of time. Student evaluations have been a common practice in college classrooms for almost a century now, and they do have some benefits, in theory. Professors can learn what works for student learning and what doesn't. Students can hold apathetic or abusive teachers accountable. Departments and administrations can have a record of how their faculty is perceived by students. But often, as is the case with celebrity Twitter pages, they can become a place for people to vent their anger at someone. Only with teaching evaluations, it's a lot more personal, because the anger comes from actual, real-life interactions with a person who, for three months, has usually tried their best to do their job. I'm writing this mid-semester because he is such a bad professor. She seemed almost upset if someone did not tie the history of food with women being Oftentimes friends. it seemed as if Carl was confused by even the simplest of questions. It's terrible that some graduate student gets to ruin my future. All of her reading assignments were pointless. Highly suggest choosing someone else if at all possible. The way I see it, Jimmy Kimmel's bit is sly commentary on America's paradoxical obsession with and disdain for celebrities. When we see them read these inordinately mean messages, we're supposed to recognize both our sense of entitlement to the intimate details of these people's lives and our perceived right to distantly, dehumanizingly attack them. But because tweeting nasty things to celebrities is so absurd, it's easy to laugh at and laugh off. But that's not always the case for mean student evals. Yeah, I mean, like, even now, like, reading that out loud, um, it just, like, makes your gut, like, kind of just, like, twist. It's like, this is actually an, a real observation um, that I can't contest with. That's not a subjective thing. It's like, I did do that. And I am sorry that, like, I failed in that moment. Teaching is an incredibly vulnerable act. It usually means standing in front of a room with 20 to 30 sets of eyes watching your every move, 40 to 60 ears hanging onto your every word. That is, if you're lucky enough to hold your students' attention, the difficulty of which is abundantly clear to the teacher facing a sea of blank faces. When you're failing at teaching, you know it. So hearing your students enumerate your failings back to you in excruciating detail is painful. Here's the romanticist from my own committee talking about this kind of evaluation, which she says she dreads the most. It's, it's not so much that they are really mean. I think some people really have your number and they do notice the things that you know are not very strong about your teaching. So, um, like, I have an anxiety about mastery. I don't get that kind of comment very often, but comments that just say, like, 
that are more that sort of make me feel that anxiety about just sort of like not really being prepared enough to teach the class. There's been a lot said about how problematic teaching evaluations are, how they often discriminate against instructors from marginalized groups, how they position students as consumers and teachers as commodities, how they're not even all that good at measuring what they're supposed to measure, which is teaching effectiveness. It's well-covered territory, so I'm not going to go there right now. My point is simply to show some empathy, because I've had my fair share of mean evals too. In all lowercase, very boring class. And after identifying with the perspective of the critical student for the past five episodes, one might even say, writing one giant mean eval of PhD training as a whole, I just want to acknowledge that college professors are often doing their best, and they can be on the receiving end of much undeserved abuse. Having to face a record of your own shortcomings when you're already in a vulnerable position is something that also happens to Lucy Snow, the protagonist of the next gothic novel we'll examine, Charlotte Bronte's Villette. We'll get into an overview of the novel later, but for now, I want to focus in on one particular scene in which Lucy Snow receives her own mean eval. It happens only weeks after she's begun teaching English at the Pensionnat de Demoiselles, a private school for French-speaking girls in the heart of Villette, a fictionalized version of Brussels. Lost deep in thought, as she paces L'Allée des Fondues, an isolated corner of the school's garden, which is one of her favorite haunts, Lucy is suddenly jolted from her loneliness by a box that drops at her feet from the window above. Thinking it's for her, she opens it, finding a bouquet of violets and a letter. But when she begins to read the letter, she realizes it's not for her. And in fact, it's talking about her, in pretty unflattering terms. First, the mysterious writer thanks the intended recipient for keeping a recent liaison with him. Liaison to which Lucy herself apparently posed an obstruction. Here's Lucy as the narrator, reading the contents of the letter. You seem to think the enterprise beset with such danger, the hour so untimely, the alley so strictly secluded, often, you said, haunted by that dragon the English teacher. That dragon the English teacher being, of course, Lucy herself. The writer then goes on to describe her as... Une véritable big girl britannique, ce que vous dites, espèce de monstre, brusque et rude comme un vieux caporal de grenadier, et revêche comme une religieuse. The reader will excuse my modesty in allowing this flattering sketch of my amiable self to retain the slight veil of the original tongue. The editors of the Modern Library edition are less modest. Apparently, the author of the letter calls Lucy, quote, a veritable British prude, a type of monster, brusque and rude like an old grenadier corporal and surly like a nun. But remember, he's only repeating what his unnamed beloved, a student at the school, first said to him. What Lucy stumbles upon, then, is essentially a mean eval, albeit one filtered through the pen of her student's secret suitor. And although she describes it with sarcasm, calling it a flattering sketch of her amiable self, her reluctance to translate it, even many years later as she narrates the novel, suggests that it did sting. And, as I mentioned earlier, she's already in a vulnerable position when she reads it. The entire novel of Alette, in fact, can be read as a study of its heroine's vulnerability, her susceptibility to danger or injury, which makes it fit easily into the female Gothic tradition. When the novel opens, adolescent Lucy is staying with her godmother, Mrs. Louisa Breton, because there seems to be some undisclosed distress in her own home. Sure enough, after Lucy returns to her family, she undergoes eight troubled years that the narration skips over entirely, picking up with a now-orphaned Lucy in her late teens, hinting only cryptically at the trauma she experienced. Under the sway of some unknown force, Lucy compels herself first to London, then across the Atlantic to Villette, where she serendipitously finds employment as a nursery maid for Madame Beck, 
the proprietor of the pensionnat. The rest of the novel details Lucy's internal struggle, or one might say, educational journey, to reconcile her fierce, proud independence and her intense longing for intimate connection. A connection she finally finds with the charismatic but fiery professor, Monsieur Paul Emmanuel, only to realize later that self-interested authority figures in his life were attempting to wrench them apart all along. In the end, those self-interested agents went out. Monsieur Paul dies in a shipwreck on his way back from a transatlantic errand he conducted for them. And Lucy lives the rest of her life alone, teaching in the school he had purchased for her before leaving. In this novel, the interfering taskmasters come mostly in the form of educational figures. Because in Villette, we see the educational themes that Sherry Treffin writes about in the schoolhouse Gothic rise to the surface of a female Gothic text for the first time. For one thing, Villette takes place almost entirely in a school, the aforementioned pensionnat run by Madame Beck. Critics have widely acknowledged this institution to be a fictionalized version of the Brussels boarding school Bronte herself attended and eventually taught in, like Lucy herself, between 1842 and 1844. So while it leans much more toward realism than Udolpho or Frankenstein, Villette is still heavily informed by the Gothic genre. For instance, Bronte builds a Gothic mythology around the pensionnat. Formerly a convent, apparently, its halls are haunted by the story of a former nun who was murdered there for her indiscretions. School legend has it that she's even buried beneath a withered old pear tree in the courtyard. Bronte plays with the reader by having Lucy every now and then spot the ghostly figure of a nun silently gliding through the dark corners she frequents. Though, in the style of Anne Radcliffe, it always turns out that the nun is not a supernatural specter, and there's indeed a perfectly logical explanation for its presence. Besides the setting and the explained supernatural in Villette, though, Bronte continues in the vein of Radcliffe and Shelley by portraying a powerless Gothic heroine, ever subject to the whims of the more authoritative people around her. And her powerlessness is only exacerbated when she becomes a teacher. First, as Lucy tells us, Madame Beck all but forces her to replace her former English professor. She, without more ado, made me relinquish thimble and needle, my hand was taken into hers, and I was conducted downstairs. I was flushed and tremulous from head to foot. Tell it not in Gath, I believe I was crying. Madame Beck seems almost disgusted by Lucy's reticence, unmoved by her legitimate protest that she has only a tenuous grasp of French, which, of course, is the language she'll need to speak in order to instruct her students. And the students themselves, as Madame Beck well knows, are a difficult group that promise to challenge Lucy's autonomy as well. As the headmistress asserts in the hallway, shortly before issuing Lucy through the classroom doors. But let me tell you, these are not quiet, decorous English girls you are going to encounter. Ce sont les labascouriennes, rondes, franches, brusques, et trans soit peu rebelles. That is, straightforward, frank, brusque, and a little rebellious. They always throw over timid teachers. In this text, which sympathizes with the perspective of the teacher, the students are villains. My heart rate is escalating because we're getting close to the classroom where my students abused me last Wednesday. This is Lulu, a first-year grad student in Iowa's nonfiction writing program. One Saturday, when the English philosophy building was unoccupied, except for a few timid high schoolers participating in a debate competition, we paid a visit to the room where she teaches rhetoric two days a week. I'm glad, I'm actually glad to be back here right now because it's preparing me to come back on Monday and face these students. It's a course that grad students often teach to earn their tuition and stipend, and that undergrad students are required to take, often kicking and screaming, to earn general education credit. So I started teaching in this room, I think, on January 23rd, I want
want to say, or fourth. Today is March 3rd. Lulu, like Lucy Snow, is new to teaching. She's only just out of college herself. And like the Demoiselle at Madame Beck's Pensionnat, the students in this particular class have been difficult. Yeah, Wednesday was uh, horrific. So they are working on speeches right now. Um, and Wednesday was our speech workshop day. So they all had to come in with a hard copy of a draft of their speech so that they could pair up and share those speeches with a partner. And from the beginning, this was destined to fail because despite giving them guided in-class writing time on Monday, half of them did not come with a speech draft. Lulu was at a loss, she says. Her entire lesson plan depended on students having done what she had assigned for homework. And when Lulu pointed out that they hadn't done what she asked, things got worse. And then began, like, not quite yelling, but almost yelling that I had definitely told them not to bring a hard copy. And that I had tricked them and they don't they didn't understand why I hadn't told them to bring a hard copy. Meanwhile, I have five or six excellent students who are sitting there with their note cards or their printed out draft ready to workshop. One student in particular, Lulu says, started escalating the situation even more than the others. She'd been disruptive all semester, and by the time Lulu and I spoke about it, she'd effectively failed the class because of absences. But that day, says Lulu, she was making her presence very known. Had like a strange meltdown and was very hostile and disrespectful, and she um, wouldn't exchange her speech draft, wouldn't acknowledge me speaking to her. Um, was distracting students in other groups, and then everything broke down completely. This wasn't the only difficult person in the room, though. Unlike Lucy Snow, Lulu's class was almost entirely men, and men only two to three years younger than she was um, at the time. Yeah, so I also had a student uh, near to the beginning take a picture of me during the class, and the flash went off. I feel like being young and female and teaching students that aren't much younger than me, especially in a class of mostly male students like this one, I run the risk if I try enforcing any kind of discipline of like completely losing respect if my if putting my foot down doesn't work for whatever reason. As it turns out, there's a scholarly term for what Lulu had been experiencing. Kristen, are you there? Academic incivility. Yeah, so um, academic incivility is any action that is, whether it's taken by students or faculty, um, that is disruptive and interferes with the learning environment and the learning community. Um, essentially, it refers to behaviors that violate the mutual respect between students and faculty. This is Kristen Nepp a clinical psychologist and former resident at the Association of College and University Educators. Kristen earned her PhD in psychology from Virginia Tech, where she conducted research and published an article on academic incivility. It's a concept she came to through her experience teaching a weekly recitation session of a large intro to psych lecture. Probably about 30 to 40 students instead of 500. So um, when I was a graduate student and I was teaching, I did encounter incivility uh, from my undergraduate students, um, you know, and I, I did have kind of the two strikes against me that we talked about before. I was young and female. Uh, and I think that I took that choice to delve into the research because it was validating. It was kind of like, okay, academic incivility, this is a thing. It's real. It exists. It's not just me. Uh, and it just gave me the sense of validation. So it made me feel like I wasn't alone. Kristen and the other researchers around the world who study academic incivility generally concur that it comes in some common forms. Things that sound a lot like what Lulu experienced. Sleeping in class 
or um, disapproving groans or sighs during the lecture, acting bored or disinterested in the lecture, um, perhaps not even attending class is, is another one that is seen a lot, especially in uh, courses that are required um, or general education requirements. Uh, any challenges to the instructor's knowledge or credibility uh, might be perceived as an un uncivil behavior and even dominating class discussion. Kristen rightly points out that, to an extent, incivility is in the eye of the beholder. Some instructors may hardly notice these things, but for others, it can be highly upsetting. But some of the more severe forms of incivility would seem harder to ignore. The stalking, uh, whether that's in person or electronically, intimidation, um, complaints to a uh, professor's supervisors like the department chair or the dean that are unjustified, or perhaps unwarranted negative feedback on an instructor's teaching evaluation at the end of the term. Hmm. And just like in the research on student evaluations, it turns out women and people of color are more likely to experience incivility from their students. One potential reason for this, Kristen says, is something called the professorial stereotype, which is even modern day college students seem to have this stereotype in their heads of what a college professor quote unquote should look like. And typically they envision a more mature, older white male uh, with a deep voice and a commanding presence in the classroom. And when they don't encounter that in their own courses, uh, they may be more likely to turn that behavior outward and perhaps act in an uncivil manner. So These students are looking for weakness in us as grad students when we get up in front of them. Not every group, but definitely this group. Back to Lucy Snow. Still standing outside the door of the classroom, Madame Beck presents a challenge to her young employee. Dites donc, vous sentez-vous réellement trop faible? Do you really think you're that weak? Lucy feels something shift within her, and she's overcome by that fierce pride I mentioned earlier. En avant! Let's go. Madame Beck proceeds to march through a stern catechism, rallying her new soldier for battle like a general. Are you too overexcited to teach? She asks first. I am no more excited than this stone, Lucy says, tapping her toe on the flag beneath her feet. Others haven't made it, says Madame Beck. These girls are harsh. Lucy replies to each new point with determination, until finally, Madame Beck issues her final caution. You will not expect aid from me or from anyone. That would at once set you down as incompetent for your office. To which Lucy responds by silently opening the classroom door, issuing the headmistress in ahead of her, and then taking her place at the front of the room. As Madame Beck introduces her as the new teacher, Lucy surveys the class. She notes that they seem, quote, turbulent, unmanageable, robust, riotous, and demonstrative. They're not much younger than she is, on the whole, and several of them are from aristocratic families. As it turns out, these titled bells, as she calls them, give her the most trouble. They knew they had succeeded in expelling obnoxious teachers before now. They knew that Madame would at any time throw overboard a professor or maîtresse who became unpopular with the school. Looking at Miss Snow, they promised themselves an easy victory. Leading the charge, Mademoiselles Blanche, Virginie, and Angelique start to whisper as Lucy begins giving instruction. Soon, the whispers turn to murmurs, then they're laughing out loud, perhaps the most insecure scenario for any teacher to be in, much less one on her first day. It's so hard to have a class and you know they're laughing at you, but you don't know why and you can't call them out for it. For Lucy Snow, it becomes a growing revolt of 60 against one. And since her command of French is so limited, there's not much she can do about it, at least not verbally. Because here's where things start to take a turn. Up until this point, it's easy to empathize with Lucy's vulnerability as a new teacher. She's already lived a hard enough life. She's lonely. She's far from home. Not that she has any loved ones left back in England to make it a home. 
She's young, she's inexperienced, and she's surrounded by people who seem to want her to fail. Plus, she doesn't even speak the language. When this class inevitably turns against her, we feel for her powerlessness. And as Madame Beck warned her, she can't even ask anyone for help. But the way she reacts to this difficult scenario is less easy to empathize with. The only asset she does have is her superior knowledge of English, the language she's supposed to be teaching to the wild herd. It's a tiny scrap of power, and she immediately uses it to assert her authority. All I could now do was to walk up to Blanche, Mademoiselle de Melcy, a young baronne, the eldest, tallest, handsomest, and most vicious, stand before her desk, take from under her hand her exercise book, remount the estrade, deliberately read the composition, which I found very stupid, and as deliberately, and in the face of the whole school, tear the blotted page in two. She resorts to using humiliation, or, one might say, emotional abuse, as a means of behavior management. And soon, she uses physical abuse as well. Because although humiliating Blanche had almost succeeded in entirely checking the mutiny, there was still one persistent student. One girl alone, quite in the background, persevered in the riot with undiminished energy. I noted that she sat close by a little door, which door, I was well aware, opened into a small closet where books were kept. In an instant, and with sharpness, I had turned on her. In another instant, she occupied the closet, the door was shut, and the key in my pocket. In probably the most famous scene of Villette, Lucy forces a student into the closet and locks her in, in front of everyone. After this, she's won the awe and respect of the rest of the students. But, as Lucy herself tells us, they still remain unmotivated, low-achieving learners. A severe or continuous mental application they could not or would not bear. Heavy demand on the memory, the reason, the attention they rejected point-blank. Where an English girl of not more than average capacity and docility would quietly take a theme and bend herself to the task of comprehension and mastery, a labas courienne would laugh in your face and throw it back to you with the phrase, Dieu que c'est difficile, je n'en veux pas, cela m'ennuie trop. God, how it's difficult. I don't want it. It bores me too much. Lucy believes her students' poor learning skills are actually innate, a product of their, quote, quick French blood and marsh phlegm, rather than a learned response from the educational experiences of their past. At first, she's furious with them. On the edge of a moral volcano that rumbled under my feet and sent sparks and hot fumes into my eyes. But then she settles into contempt, adopting a cold, sarcastic manner towards her students and occasionally mocking them to keep their self-esteem low. I never knew them rebel against a wound given to their self-respect. The little they had of that quality was trained to be crushed, and it rather liked the pressure of a firm heel than otherwise. Difficult as her situation may be, Lucy Snow educates in a way that reinforces dominance, as bell hooks would say. In this case, she reinforces what she considers to be English dominance over the French in terms of their supposedly inborn work ethic and sense of decorum. Like Saint-Aubert, Montoni, Alphonse Frankenstein, and Monsieur Crimp before her, Lucy Snow is a Gothic teacher whose pedagogy is informed by her own prejudices, her own self-serving power hierarchy. Lucy Snow, while in some senses a Gothic heroine, is simultaneously a gothic villain. I, I, I know that a lot of professors are uncomfortable with their authority in the classroom. They feel uncomfortable grading students, and grading as a whole can of worms, and I, I get it. Uh, I'm uncomfortable grading students. This is David Gublar, a lecturer of rhetoric at the University of Iowa and author of the book The Missing Course, Everything They Never Taught You About College Teaching. In his work, he argues that, ironically, college teachers are never really taught how to teach. 
And this circumstance sets the conditions for abuses of power. But there is an authority that we have as, as instructors, as professors, and it's imbued by the institution. And just by being uncomfortable with it, we, we can't ignore it. And I think it's on anyone with that authority to use that authority to structure class to be as equitable as possible. Um, so I do think that it, it very easily shades from sort of pedagogical choices to really like ethical uh, and moral, uh, moral choices. This is precisely what I've been arguing all along, that the ways we treat students, both inside and outside of the classroom, is very much a matter of social justice. Because as professors, we have power over them. Even if it may not always feel that way, or even if we're uncomfortable looking at it that way. And this is what I've seen happening in the Gothic, too. Student-teacher relationships being dramatized in ways that make clear how abusive teachers can be if they're not careful. But the thing that makes Villette a bit different from Udolpho and Frankenstein is that its author, Charlotte Bronte, doesn't seem to critique Gothic teaching. In many ways, she praises it. The most obvious example is the stern, shame-oriented pedagogy of Lucy's teaching idol turned fiancé, Monsieur Paul Emmanuel. Prove yourself true ere I cherish you, was his ordinance, and how difficult he made that proof. The cousin of Madame Beck and a well-regarded professor at the prestigious Athenae Boys' School in Villette, Monsieur Paul is an imposing figure at the Pensionnat. Students tremble at his approach, which, as Gublar points out, doesn't actually make him a great teacher by modern standards. And the motivation, if they're motivated by grades or motivated by um, fear of embarrassment, um, it's not, that's not very strong motivation, the research tells us. If they're motivated by intrinsic means because they really want to learn, that is good. That, uh, that is much more effective. That is also decidedly not how Monsieur Paul, the most lauded pedagogue of Villette, motivates his students. According to Lucy Snow's observations, it seems he wants students to be motivated by a desire for his approval. What thorns and briars, what flints he strewed in the path of feet not inured to rough travel. He watched tearlessly ordeals that he exacted should be passed through fearlessly. He followed footprints that as they approached the bourne were sometimes marked in blood. Followed them grimly, holding the austerest police watch over the pain-pressed pilgrim, Lucy explains that, for Monsieur Paul, the pupil's quest to learn is like the pilgrim's quest to a holy site, in this case, the realm of knowledge. As pilgrims, his students wish to join some chosen group, the learned, the saved, and he has the power to grant their salvation. And he's going to make that salvation as difficult to attain as possible, apparently. When at last he allowed a rest, before slumber might close the eyelids, he opened those same lids wide with pitiless finger and thumb. If at last he let the neophyte sleep, it was but a moment. He woke him suddenly up to apply new tests. He sent him on irksome errands when he was staggering with weariness. He tried the temper, the sense, and the health. And it was only when every severest test had been applied and endured that he admitted it genuine and, still in clouded silence, stamped it with his deep brand of approval. One wonders how Bronte came up with this metaphor. Where had she heard of the practices of sleep deprivation and irksome errands as initiation trials? Although it may seem surprising and completely unrelated, Bronte's metaphor for Monsieur Paul's pedagogy bears a striking resemblance to something from our modern context. Hazing. Specifically, the kind you might find in a college frat house. And though we rarely think of hazing outside of that context, it could certainly exist in the grad school gothic as well. Hazing is any activity expected of someone uh, joining, um, seeking membership in, or maintaining one's full status as a member in a club, organization, um, or team that humiliates, degrades, abuses, or endangers them regardless of a person's willingness to participate. This is Elizabeth Allen, professor of higher education at the University of Maine and president and co-founder of the organization Stop Hazing. As she says here, the first component of hazing involves a person trying to join or maintain membership in a group 
and needing other members' approval to do so. Similar to, say, trying to earn a degree by passing the examination of a handful of those who already hold it. He's like, we don't want to just let anyone in. They need to prove themselves. They need to show they're worthy. There's nothing inherently wrong with having standards, says Alan. If a group is founded with a certain mission in mind, say, to teach others about literature, then of course it makes sense that the group would want to ensure its members are fit to carry out that mission. It, you know, when we, we say we want to shift away from a hazing culture, we're not saying that people, we're not expecting people to work hard. And we're not expecting people to prove themselves, no. It's just that we are rethinking how it is um, that they demonstrate that. And, and making sure that the ways in which we expect people to demonstrate it conform to the vision of what we say we're about. Pardon the pun, but things get hazy, says Alan, when the group's vision and training methods no longer match. But yeah, so I, I would say that would be number one is alignment with the you know, mission and goals and values of, of the group and the larger context in which it operates. Um, you know, with an athletic team, you know, you obviously expect people to have to come to practice. <laughs> and the practice involves maybe doing push-ups or something like this. And same thing with the military, but it wouldn't be okay for a doctoral student to be expected to do that in order to do their dissertation. Sure. It would seem pretty absurd to ask someone to do push-ups to earn their PhD. But at this moment, when the humanities are undergoing a kind of identity crisis, and the aim of the PhD no longer really seems to be landing a tenure-track job, it's worth examining whether our mission and goals are still aligned, as Elizabeth Allen would say. Maybe, among other things, proto-monograph dissertations are the new push-ups. But back to Villette. Prove yourself true ere I cherish you. Do Monsieur Paul's training methods match the mission of the school? What is it that the Dumoiselles are being trained to do at Madame Beck's pensionnat? Lucy Snow tells us that the school educates both the young countess and the young bourgeois, though she never explicitly says for what. If we can take any insight from the pensionnat's real-life counterpart, the Belgian school Bronte attended herself, then the chief mission of Madame Beck's school was to prepare its demoiselles to be good wives and mothers. So no, Monsieur Paul's metaphorical thorns and briars wouldn't seem to match that aim. Such methods seem uncalled for, and thus it would seem that Monsieur Paul's ruthless teaching is a form of hazing. Nevertheless, and somewhat confusingly, he's adored by the school students. Take, for instance, the literal heap of honor they bestow on him each year for his birthday. At the start of the morning class, they parade into the classroom, each girl laying a bouquet on his desk, until the mound becomes so high that he disappears behind it, engulfed by their adoration. Lucy Snow contrasts this with the compulsory and flamboyant celebration for Madame Beck. It was an honor spontaneously awarded, not plotted and contrived beforehand, and offered an additional proof, amongst many others, of the estimation in which, despite his partialities, prejudices and irritabilities, the professor of literature was held by his pupils. This might seem to offer evidence that Monsieur Paul's pedagogical ends justify the means. If students love him, he must not be abusing them after all, right? Back to Elizabeth Allen and the definition of hazing. And then third component, which is super important, uh, especially because it's often one that is um, an impediment in understanding when something crosses the line into hazing, is that it can occur regardless of a person's willingness to participate. Because of the, the peer pressure, the inherent um, power dynamics of the group where you have some people who are already members with other people seeking membership. And um, even if you give people a choice of whether or not they want to do it, it can be considered sometimes a coercive environment. So even if those on the receiving end of hazy training practices participate willingly, even if they remain loyal to the person or institution performing the punishing initiation rituals, even if they seem to consent to the abuse, it's still abuse. And when people begin willingly submitting themselves to abuse, says Alan, 
things get pretty convoluted pretty quickly. Often if a fraternity decides in good faith to shift its hazing culture, the next group of uh, recruits will say, but wait a minute, I, I wanted to be hazed. This may not be what you'd expect, but in a way, it makes sense. You know, because it gave them a feeling of worth and that they would be judged at the same level of quality as the other members who came before them, etc., etc. In other words, when a system of training is abusive, it has the unexpected side effect of teaching current and future trainees that surviving abuse is the only way to prove your worth. I never knew them rebel against a wound given to their self-respect. The little they had of that quality was trained to be crushed, and it rather liked the pressure of a firm heel than otherwise. It rather liked the pressure of a firm heel than otherwise. It's a bit like Stockholm Syndrome. Beginning to sympathize, even fall in love with your tormentors. Sometimes he borrows the lineaments of an insane tomcat. Sometimes those of a delirious hyena. Occasionally, but very seldom, he discards these perilous attractions and assumes an air not above 100 degrees removed from mild and gentlemanlike. This is Charlotte Bronte, or a voice actress playing Charlotte Bronte, describing her real-life professor, Constantine Eger, in a letter to her friend Ellen Nussie, dated May 1842, about three months after she arrived at the Pensionnat Eger. At 26 years old, Bronte was pursuing a continental education so she could one day open up her own school for girls in England. In this letter to her friend, she first describes the headmistress, then moves on to describe someone who, to readers of Villette, should sound very familiar. Monsieur Eger, the husband of Madame, is professor of rhetoric, a man of power as to mind, but very choleric and irritable in temperament, a little black being with a face that varies in expression. As many Bronte biographers and scholars have pointed out, the Monsieur Paul of Villette seems quite clearly to be modeled on the real-life Constantine Eger. For comparison, here's Lucy Snow's description of Monsieur Paul the first time she sees him. A small, dark, and spare man in spectacles. And like Eger's tomcat, or hyena-like temper, here's Lucy Snow's description of Monsieur Paul's. The scarce suppressed impetus of a most irritable nature glowed in his cheek, fed with sharp shafts his glances, a nature the injudicious, the mawkish, the hesitating, the sullen, the affected, above all the unyielding, might quickly render violent and implacable. The way Lucy Snow handles Monsieur Paul's temper also looks a lot like Bronte with Eger. It was time to soothe him a little, if possible. Mais monsieur, said I, I would not insult you for the world. I remember too well that you once said we should be friends. I did not intend my voice to falter, but it did. I wept. Allons, allons, said he presently. Decidedly, I am a monster and a ruffian. Compare this to Charlotte's description of a recent interaction with Monsieur Eger in a letter to Ellen Nussie. He's very angry with me just at present because I have written a translation which he chose to stigmatize as per correct. And he is very ferocious with me, I cry. That sets all things straight. It seems clear that Lucy Snow, like her creator, preferred a harsh pedagogy and seemed to have a romantic infatuation with her harsh professor. I liked, for instance, to see Monsieur Emmanuel jealous. It lit up his nature and woke his spirit. It threw all sorts of queer lights and shadows over his dun face and into his violet azure eyes. The novel is full of passionate scenes of Monsieur Paul yelling at her, shaming her to tears. But unlike the typical abused student, Lucy and Charlotte seem less than put off by it. It is natural to me to submit and very unnatural to command. Even if they didn't have a seemingly masochistic attraction to their emotionally abusive teachers, though, it's still unsurprising that Lucy Snow and Charlotte Bronte condone such methods and even become emotionally abusive teachers themselves. In psychology, the victim-to-victimizer hypothesis is ubiquitous. As already discussed with Victor Frankenstein, often the downtrodden student 
goes on to become the teacher who applies the pressure of a firm heel. Hazer's gonna haze. And Lucy's comments about crushing her students' self-respect in order to keep them in line illustrates how directly influenced she is by her own hazer, Monsieur Paul. A constant crusade against the amour propre of every human being but himself was the crotchet of this able but fiery and grasping little man. This term, amour propre, means personal pride, or the self-respect that Lucy also likes to crush in her students. When she has this attitude, it's no wonder she receives such a scathing evaluation from her student. She really is. That dragon, the English teacher. As I've been doing all along, let's have one last show of sympathy for the dragon. According to the victim-to-victimizer hypothesis, Lucy doesn't know any better. She's just mindlessly reproducing the abusive teaching practices she's experienced, and that she and the entire school seem to be enamored with. It's the same with the grad school gothic. Because, probably because undergraduate education is so, um, it's such a big topic, there's so many more undergrads, and it affects more than just the academy, we tend to ignore graduate education altogether. Uh, except when people are worrying about there not being jobs or PhDs, right? That, that's something that gets talked about. But how graduate students are educated just isn't talked about, and, and it shows that it's not talked about because it's not uh, much different than it was 20 years ago, 50 years ago, I would bet. One reason for this sustained, unexamined graduate pedagogy? Like Elizabeth Allen said. He's like, we don't want to just let anyone in. They need to prove themselves. They need to show they're worthy. The idea that because these are the highest degrees awarded by the academy, they need to be rigorous. They need to prove that someone is worthy of being a doctor or an expert at something. And it's true. These degrees do need to be rigorous. But still, as Gublar says, The idea that an abusive or neglectful um, PhD advisors is about rigor strikes me as a post hoc rationalization, right? It's this is the way it's always been done. Let me figure out how to justify how it's been done. Um, but if we think of PhD advising as teaching, then we need to think of, well, what are our goals and what are the best ways to get there? And I think once we think about our goals, which is, like, you know, at the very least is to make future academics, um, then it like becomes obvious really, really quickly that um, the way we do it now is not the best way to do it. Training future academics does need to be rigorous. People need to identify pressing theoretical and practical lines of inquiry in their chosen fields and try to figure out ways to contribute. But training them to do that by having them write a 200-page document that must meet the approval of mainly one monolithic authority figure is probably not, as Gublar says, the best way to do it. Um, yeah, and I, I think it would be good for um, any graduate program that's interested in uh, not just fairness, but sustainability, to try to move away from a model in which a graduate student's education is 100% invested in one person, right? It is so dangerous, and we've heard, I mean, we've heard so many horror stories of, of I mean, outright abuse, but even when there's not outright abuse, there's so many opportunities for a career to be ruined, for um, a person's education to be uh, cut off track, because the department basically says, well, it was that one person's responsibility. And so I really would love to see departments make it a priority that um, the responsibility is shared over a number of people and that, in fact, the department has much more oversight over supervision. It's a matter of social justice, of making the academy feel more inclusive and eventually look more inclusive, too. And it's really not just about training teachers. It's also about training students. Because when we act like monoliths in the classroom, as in the case of that dragon, the English teacher. We train our students to dehumanize us. We turn them, in other words, into monsters of our own creation. Mean evals then, and I mean the really mean ones with personal barbs, can be seen as a record of students' abuse. Not the kind they give out, but the kind they've experienced. 
They've been trained to believe their professors are these all-knowing, inhuman beings whose mysterious approval will make or break them. The students who lash out are often the ones who carry the most trauma. And a truly student-centered pedagogue knows this. Back to Lulu, one such pedagogue who did not lock her monster pupil in the closet. Even with this student, this female student, I still worry about her. Even though she's made my life very difficult, the reason I didn't tell her to drop the class weeks ago is because I wanted to see if I could help her through this course. Um, I could tell something was up, and usually when a student acts out, something is up. And in a university like this, it's so easy for a student like that to get lost. It's so easy for a student like that to get lost. The best way to combat the student monster, to undo the makings of their monstrousness, is to recognize that those students were, at some point, taught to be monsters. Which means they can be untaught by being handled with care. To break the cycle of mindless pedagogical reproduction, we need to step away from the edge of the moral volcano. My Gothic Dissertation was written, reported, and produced by me, Anna Williams. To hear episodes, read transcripts, and see footnotes, head over to mygothicdissertation.com. You can subscribe to My Gothic Dissertation wherever you get your podcasts, including Lyceum, an exciting new platform that brings together the most inspiring ideas, discussions, and people in the world's first audio learning community. Lyceum offers a unique online forum, so if you'd like to engage directly with me about what you've heard, download the Lyceum app, search for My Gothic Dissertation, and leave me a comment in the discussion room. The theme song for My Gothic Dissertation is Can't Stop Running, written and performed by Adam Ben-Ezra. A big thanks to him for allowing me to use it. The website and logo for My Gothic Dissertation were designed by Brett Forsyth of Yellowhammer Creative. Consultants were Ginger Marshall, Michael Garofalo, and of course my dissertation committee, who lifted the gate and allowed me to do this project in the first place. Thanks to everyone who let me interview them. They are Sherry Treffin, Kevin Birmingham, Deirdre Egan, Virginia Crisco, Meredith Elzey, Isabel Scockney, Ellen Ledoux, Elizabeth Allen, Judith Pascoe, Susan Mingi, David Gublar, Paul Minot, Timothy Burke, Joe Livingston, Kristen Nepp, Janelle Schwartz, Matt Barton, Renee Ledoux, Amy Paulus, Kathy Magarel, Annie Sand, Jenny Benoit, and my peers Laura, Lydia, Angela, Lulu, Caitlin, Jamie, Kathleen, Pedro, Philip, Maheen, Jen, Jillian, Anne-Marie, Margaret, Tori, Maddie, Ian, Brady, Rachel, and Carl. Finally, I'd like to give a shout out to the Iowa Public Radio talk show team, who were my engaged radio pedagogues back in 2016 and 17. They are Katherine Perkins, Charity Nebbe, Ben Kiefer, Lindsay Moon, Emily Woodbury, Claire Roth, and Dennis Reese. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week.